This podcast and this story begin this week in an appropriate place, in Start, Start, Louisiana, that is, where on May 1st, 1967, a star was born. Samuel Timothy Smith would grow up in this tiny town in Richland Parish, the son of a waitress and a long-distance truck driver. When he was young, Sam would often ride shotgun in his daddy's truck, while the old radio belted out the latest hits by Merle Haggard, George Jones, and Johnny Paycheck. From what I've read, his childhood was a pretty normal, small-town American one. He sang in church, played baseball, and was a pretty good student. When Sam was 11, he was assigned a school project and was rooting around in his mom's closet for something when he came across his birth certificate. Young Sam stared at it for a long time. His father's name had been blacked out, but his profession was there clear as day. Baseball player. Baseball player? But his dad was a truck driver. The poor kid was confused and asked his mom what was going on. I'm not sure of the words she used, but the story was this. When she was a senior in high school, living in her native Florida, she had met a minor league baseball player called Tug, who at that time pitched for the Jacksonville Suns. They had shared a moment, and when that moment had grown into a baby, her parents had sent her to Louisiana to live with family there. She had met a young man named Horace Smith, who had married her when young Sam was just seven months old. They hadn't seen any need to tell him the whole story. Horace was and always had been his father, even if their relationship wasn't through blood. His birth father had gone on to play for the New York Mets and the Phillies and was a two-time World Series champion. Sam wanted to meet this man, so, no doubt reluctantly, his mother took him to Houston, where Tug would be playing a road game. Tug initially denied the story, but after some time to think and consider, he would contact Sam, and they would forge a relationship going forward. At least Sam knew where his baseball talent came from. He would play at Monroe Christian High School, where he graduated second in his class. He entered a pre-law program on a baseball scholarship at Northeast Louisiana State University. An injury would end his baseball career there, though, and his dreams would have to shift. Perhaps he was thinking of those long rides with his dad, the man who raised him, not the ball player, when he went to a pawn shop and bought his first guitar. His roommates remember how bad he was, but he kept practicing and kept getting better. Sam dropped out of school, and when his mom returned home to Florida, he went with her. He joined a band and started playing gigs and kept practicing until, at 22 in 1989, he chased his dreams all the way to Nashville. Nashville is a tough town, but Sam got a few gigs playing the clubs in Printer's Alley and soon decided to cut a demo tape. His birth father had friends at Curb Records and put the tape in the right hands there, and soon Sam had himself a record deal. He released his debut self-titled album, and his first single, What Room Was the Holiday In, came out on March 29, 1991. It got some airplay because his birth father was a well-known ball player, but to be honest, it's a terrible song on a terrible album. The album tanked, and Sam hit the road with his band, The Dance Hall Doctors. While his album died on record store shelves, his live performances were a hit. He started to gain a following, and was determined to do better with his next album. It would be three years before that album dropped in 1994, but when it did, it was not a moment too soon. This breakthrough album gave Sam his first number one hit, sold 6 million copies, and was named Album of the Year. Sam was named Best New Country Artist. He was on his way. The rest is history. Sam went on to produce 16 albums and counting, and has had 55 top 10 hits, and a whopping 26 number one singles. His albums to date 
have sold 75 million copies worldwide. And he's even starred in movies and on television. But this story will finish where it began, in Tiny Start, Louisiana. In 2002, Sam returned to his hometown to play a show at the old Cotton Gin there. 40,000 fans showed up, and the show was broadcast on live TV across the country. Samuel Smith had finally come home. His music is great and loved by many, myself included. He's produced some of my favorite songs, which are a far cry from his terrible debut self-titled album. If you are a fan of this podcast, I'm sure you've guessed by now that that album was not called Samuel Smith, though. You see, Sam always went by his middle name, and at some point in his late teens, after developing a relationship with his birth father, decided to take his last name instead. This connection no doubt helped with that initial contract with Curb Records. That first album may have been a flop, but it introduced the world of country music to a name which would dominate the charts for the next 30 years. And frankly, I can't wait to see what he has in store for his next 30 years. The name on that very first album cover was none other than Start Louisiana's favorite hometown son, the legendary Tim McGraw. I travel the country over, stopped in each and every town. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of American Anthology. This is your host, Mike Harding, and I am thrilled to be back with you today. In today's episode, I'm going to bring you more stories from Louisiana, the Pelican State. Since last we met, I traveled up the west of the state, through Natchitoches and on to Shreveport. From there, I made my way across the north, through Grambling, Monroe, and fascinating Poverty Point, on my way back to the Mississippi River. Then I dipped down to Alexandria, spent some more time in Cajun country and along the North Shore, and ended up back in Baton Rouge for the wonderful Third Street Songwriters Festival. It was there that I met our musical guest for this week's show, the incredibly talented Joe Sims. Joe is first and foremost an amazing songwriter, but I know you'll enjoy his soulful, bluesy style of rock and roll as well. To find out more about Joe, where you can see him next, or to listen to more of his music, check out his website, joesimsmusic.com. That's J-O-E-S-I-M-S music.com. You can also find and download all the songs you'll hear today on iTunes and Spotify. You can find Joe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Joe Sims Music. To find out more about me, to see photos from my journey around northern Louisiana, or just to get in touch, head on over to my website, www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles2gobeforeisleep.com. Find me on Facebook, on Twitter at miles to go Tweet, and on Instagram at miles to go before I sleep, all using the number two for me and you. Let's get right to the stories this week. Why don't you grab yourself a cold bottle of Abita, root beer if you're driving, find a comfortable seat, sit back, relax, and let me take you to the plantations, football stadiums, and music clubs of North Louisiana. I'm not complaining, but there's some place I'd rather be. Just enough 
Solomon Northup was born free in Minerva, New York in 1808. His father had been born a slave, but had been freed through the will of his master upon his master's death. Solomon's mother was a free woman of color with a mixed race background. His parents worked hard and owned a small farm, enough property though for his father to be able to vote, a rarity for a black man in the beginning of the 19th century. While Solomon and his brother Joseph helped their parents on the farm, they also attained a reasonable level of formal education for the time. When Solomon was around 20, he married Anne Hampton, and the two would run their own farm in Washington County and have three children together. Solomon was an excellent fiddle player, and Anne was quite a good cook, and in 1834, they decided to sell their farm and move to Saratoga Springs to try and build a life with these skills. Anne's cooking skills could always get her work, but when fiddle gigs were in short supply, Solomon would find work as a carpenter or laborer. In the coming years, he helped construct the Champlain Canal and build the railroad, and was quite an accomplished raft builder as well. In 1841, Solomon met two men who offered him a few fiddling gigs with their show in New York City. Anne was away at the time, and thinking he could earn some quick money and be back before she was, he accepted. From New York, these men wanted him to come play a gig with them in my hometown of Washington, D.C. I'm sad to report that in 1841, slavery was still legal in the nation's capital. So they were sure he brought his papers with him, which would prove he was a free man. When they arrived in Washington, the three men went for a few drinks. At some point, Solomon started to feel sick and lost consciousness, having most likely been drugged by the two men. When he awoke, he found himself in the basement of the Yellow House, one of Washington, D.C.'s most famous slave pens, appallingly within view of the U.S. Capitol. When Solomon met notorious slave trader James Birch, who was holding him there, he tried to explain he was a free man. Birch beat Solomon severely until he stopped making these claims. Soon thereafter, Solomon was moved to Richmond, where he was loaded on the brig Orleans and shipped to New Orleans. Brought to auction in New Orleans, Solomon was sold to William Prince Ford, a preacher who owned a small farm on Bayou Beauf in North Louisiana. While one can only imagine the horror of being kidnapped and sold into slavery, Solomon always saw Ford as a good man. Ford treated his slaves well, but, despite being a man of God, could not see the inherent wrongs of the institution. Ford had timber he needed to get to market, and Solomon's raft-building skills from New York became very useful. The preacher would soon fall on hard times financially, though, and was forced to sell Solomon. A carpenter named John Thibault wanted to buy Solomon, but couldn't pay what he was worth so agreed to pay some money up front and more when he could. Tabol was not as nice as Ford and wanted to show Solomon who was boss. Saying he didn't like the nails Solomon was using on a particular job, Tabol took a whip to him. Solomon fought back and beat Tabol pretty badly. Tabol wanted to kill Solomon, but the plantation overseer reminded him that he still owed Ford quite a bit of money so killing Solomon would be a bad idea. Sometime later, they got into another fight, and again, Solomon overpowered him. Afraid for his life, Solomon ran back to Ford and took refuge with the preacher. Ford convinced Tabal to hire Solomon out, which he agreed to, but eventually Solomon was sold to Edwin Epps, on whose plantation he lived and worked for the next 10 years. Epps was quick with the whip, and was both physically and sexually abusive to his slaves. As the years dragged on, though, Solomon never gave up hope of regaining his freedom. In 1852, an itinerant Canadian carpenter named Samuel Bass came to do some work on the Epps plantation. 
Solomon overheard Bass express his dislike of slavery and decided this might be his best chance to get word out of his kidnapping. He confided in Bass, who agreed to send a letter to Henry Northrop, a descendant of the man who had freed Solomon's father. At great personal risk, Bass sent the letter, and several others he wrote himself. One of these letters reached two storekeepers in Saratoga Springs, who knew Solomon. They contacted his wife and Henry Northup, who, in turn, contacted New York Governor Washington Hunt. There were laws on the books in New York at that time, which provided funds to help black citizens who had been kidnapped and sold into slavery. Sadly, this was not an isolated incident. Northrop traveled south to try and find Solomon. Carrying Solomon's free papers and sworn affidavits from people who knew him, Henry first found Samuel Bass and then made his way on to the Epps plantation. When Northrop, with the local sheriff in tow, confronted Epps, Epps was furious. Unconcerned with the fact that a free man had been working for a decade on his plantation, Epps only saw the loss of his property. He said if he had known they were coming, he would have killed Solomon outright. Thankfully, that did not happen, and the two men began the long journey back to New York and freedom for Solomon. On the way back, they stopped in Washington, D.C., and had James Birch arrested for selling Solomon into slavery in the first place. Sadly, since a black man could not testify in court at the time, and Birch could get people to corroborate his story, he was acquitted. Solomon continued on to New York, where he was reunited with his wife and children. Later that year, with the help of journalist David Wilson, he wrote a memoir of his time in captivity. Twelve Years a Slave would sell 30,000 copies and be an important contribution to the abolitionist movement. Solomon went back to work as a carpenter and sometimes spoke at abolitionist meetings. Twelve Years a Slave would go through several editions after its initial publishing in 1853, but then would go out of print and fade into obscurity for almost a hundred years. It was eventually rediscovered and republished by the Louisiana State University Press in 1968. In 1984, it was made into a film for PBS titled Solomon Northup's Odyssey, and in 2013, the story made it to the big screen under its original title, 12 Years a Slave. Filmed on location in Louisiana, the movie would go on to win three Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Within a few years of returning from Louisiana, Solomon Northup disappeared into history. While many have speculated, no one really knows what happened to him from there. One can only hope he lived out his days happy and healthy and free. When you're lonely and scared I'll always be there To put my arms around you When life gets you down And you need a friend I promise to be there for you Sometimes this world can be cruel and unkind It's so hard to smile through the pain If you'll be sunshine the lights of my sky I'll be your shelter when it rains when it rains singing the blues ain't easy living the blues well living the blues has been known to kill a man few people have lived the blues harder than Mooringsport Louisiana native Hoodie Ledbetter who the world remembers as Lead Belly. A hard name for a harder man is how his friend Woody Guthrie remembered him. But he also remembered Lead Belly as the king of the 12-string guitar and a man with a seemingly endless repertoire of Southern folk 
blues, and children's songs. And while it's his folk music that we should remember him by, it's hard to talk about Leadbelly's life without thinking how it personified the blues. Leadbelly was born to sharecropper parents on the Jeter Plantation in northern Louisiana sometime around 1888. Those first few years were probably lean ones, as his parents were skimping and saving every penny in the hopes of a brighter future. Their hard work paid off when Leadbelly was five, and his parents bought a plot of land all their own, just across the border in Bowie County, Texas. Leadbelly dropped out of school when he was about 12 years old to help out on the family farm, and seemed to spend all his free time playing music. While we remember his guitar skills, he could also play the piano, accordion, mandolin, and harmonica. When he was about 15, Leadbelly decided to try his luck as a musician and moved back to Louisiana and landed in Shreveport. He cut his teeth playing in the clubs on Fannin Street in Shreveport's red light district, often referred to as St. Paul's Bottom. It was a rough part of town, and Leadbelly no doubt grew up quick there. On the flip side, he was exposed to all kinds of music, and it's been said he developed his booming voice there, trying to be heard above the chaos. It's also been said he fathered two children during his time in St. Paul's Bottom and skipped town before his 17th birthday. Leadbelly took to the road, making his way as an itinerant musician and falling back on farm work when times got tough. He made his way to Dallas, where he fell in with the great musician Blind Lemon Jefferson. Leadbelly helped Jefferson get around, and in return, Jefferson taught Leadbelly some serious lessons about their profession. It was this friendship that pushed Leadbelly to focus on the 12-string guitar. It was in 1915 that Leadbelly first got in trouble with the law. Sentenced to 30 days for his role in a bar fight, Leadbelly was put to work on a chain gang. He immediately escaped and fled back to Bowie County. There, he changed his name to Walter Boyd and went back to work on the farm, where he lay low for the next two years. In 1917, he went to a dance and got into a fight with his cousin Will over a girl. Will pulled a gun, but Leadbelly was too quick and shot the man in the head. Will died, and Leadbelly was sentenced to 30 years at the Imperial Farm in Sugarland. It was there that he got his nickname, although there are several different stories as to where it came from. I like the one that says he could drink any type or strength of moonshine that found its way inside, but it's obviously just a play on his last name. Soon after he arrived at the prison, Leadbelly got stabbed in the neck, but stayed on his feet and almost beat his attacker to death. Despite this incident, though, Leadbelly was seen as a model prisoner and spent his days entertaining guards and prisoners alike. Even the governor of Texas loved to hear him play, and often brought his family and a picnic lunch along on the weekends. When Leadbelly first came up for parole in 1925, he wrote a special song for the governor, who happily set Leadbelly free. He kept his nose clean for the next five years, but in 1930, Leadbelly was home in Mooringsport when he got into another knife fight. He stabbed a white man and ended up with a 10-year sentence in the state prison at Angola. It was there that fate intervened. It so happened that in the early 1930s, father and son, John and Alan Lomax, were using their new portable recording equipment to record folk songs for the Library of Congress. Prisons were one of their preferred stops in the South. When they met Leadbelly and found that not only could he play, but that he had a near encyclopedic knowledge of folk music, they became fast friends. The Lomaxes petitioned to gain Leadbelly an early release in 1934, although the pressures of the Great Depression didn't hurt in that regard. Afraid his release might be canceled if he couldn't find work, Leadbelly asked John if he could work as his driver. John agreed, and the two traveled around the Deep South together for the next three months. 
When John returned north, Lead Belly went with him and performed at a series of speaking events John had previously lined up. He even played at Harvard. After a disagreement over how much money he should be making from these gigs erupted, Lead Belly returned home to Louisiana. In 1936, he came back to New York and performed two shows at the Apollo Theater. He could easily find gigs around town and fell in with the radical left folk musicians in Greenwich Village. Lead Belly had been written up in Time Magazine and the New York Tribune, but both sadly seemed to focus on his prison record. The Tribune said he was here to, quote, do a few tunes between homicides. Time ran a close-up picture of his hands with the caption, these hands once killed a man. It was a shame they couldn't just focus on his music. In 1937, Lead Belly came to my hometown of Washington, D.C. to visit John Lomax's son, Alan, and record at the studio inside the Library of Congress. Lead Belly and his wife, Martha, had planned on staying with Alan in his apartment downtown, but Alan's landlord wouldn't allow it. They went out to find a hotel, but found black hotels wouldn't let him in because he was with a white man. Lead Belly found both situations strange and penned the song Bourgeois Blues about the incident. He sang, quote, I tell all the colored folks to listen to me. Don't try to find no home in Washington, D.C. because it's a bourgeois town. Perhaps because of the reputation that preceded him, in 1939, another man came at him with a knife, and Lead Belly once again turned the tides and stabbed his attacker a dozen times. He would do six months on Rikers Island for that one. When he got out of jail, Lead Belly returned to the village, where he played shows and made friends with Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger. The three of them were often featured on Alan Lomax's radio show, Back Where I Come From. This racially integrated show made waves when Eleanor Roosevelt brought it to the White House in 1941. Try as I may, I sadly couldn't find any record of Lead Belly visiting the White House himself, though. Perhaps he remembered it was a bourgeois town. Lead Belly moved to Los Angeles in 1944, where he recorded on Capitol Records. In 1949, Lead Belly became one of the first black American musicians to tour Europe. Tragically, the tour was cut short when he fell ill and was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. Perhaps fittingly, Lead Belly's last show would be a tribute concert to the late John Lomax, who had died the previous year. It was held at the University of Texas in Austin. Hoodie, Lead Belly, Leadbetter, the king of the 12-string guitar died December 6, 1949, in New York City. He was buried very near where he was born in Mooringsport, Louisiana. Tragically, just a few months after his death, a band called The Weavers, featuring his friend Pete Seeger, covered his song Goodnight Irene, which would go on to become a number one hit. Lead Belly's influence on music cannot be underestimated. He has been cited as a major influence on many artists, from Frank Sinatra to Bob Dylan to The Beatles to Kurt Cobain. Cobain had, in fact, once tried to buy one of Lead Belly's infamous 12-string guitars. He was paying a tribute to Lead Belly in 1993 when he performed the song Where Did You Sleep Last Night when Nirvana went unplugged in New York City. While Lead Belly did sing this song with great success, he was, as usual, just drawing off of his knowledge of old folk music. While the song dates back to the 19th century, listeners of this podcast will remember from episode 8 the version recorded as The Longest Train I Ever Saw by the Teneva Ramblers at the infamous Bristol Sessions. And while Lead Belly's most famous song, Goodnight Irene, also drew from 19th century folk music, it was Lead Belly who first recorded it, and it was this song which would be inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 2002. Lead Belly himself had been inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame in 1986 and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1988. Oh, and St. Paul's Bottom 
The old red light district in Shreveport, where Lead Belly got his start? That's now called Leadbetter Heights. I'll leave you with a quote from the great Van Morrison, who grew up listening to his daddy's Lead Belly records and refers to Lead Belly as his guru. He once said, quote, Lead Belly wasn't an influence. He was the influence. If it wasn't for him, I may never have been here. I don't think he's really dead. A lot of people's bodies die, but I don't think their spirits die with them. End quote. Good night, Hoodie. Good night. We'll see you in our dreams. Have you ever stepped into a voting booth, stared down at your ballot, and let out a huge sigh of disappointment? Because somehow, you had hoped that on the way to the polls, a candidate you actually liked had entered the race. Have you ever gone and voted for the lesser of two evils, and wished like a hopeful child for a do-over on the whole thing? Have you ever considered that when less than half of Americans vote in any given election, that they are sending a message of their own? I sure have, pretty much every time I've ever voted. I've often wished there was one more little box I could check, labeled none of the above, to show I do care enough to vote, but none of the people on the ballot actually represents the America I believe we could be. You don't have to answer any of those questions. I know some of you feel the same way, but none of us, perhaps, feels as strongly about this issue as the late Luther Divine Knox once did. Born in Jigger, Louisiana in March of 1929, Luther Divine Knox claimed to have run for more offices than any American ever had, save perhaps Abraham Lincoln, and he ran for most of them in defense of none of the above. Knox made his living as a timberman and farmer and owned 1,400 acres on Bayou Macon in Northeast Louisiana. He had 13 children, so knew what it was like to have mouths to feed, and always just thought we could do better with our politics. LD, as he was known to his friends, finally put his money where his mouth was and ran for the Louisiana House of Representatives in his district in 1963. He lost the election by just 18 votes. In 1975, LD planned to run for state senate against incumbent Jim Brown, but withdrew when Brown agreed to take up the issue of placing a none-of-the-above box onto the ballot, giving voters an opportunity to call for a new election if enough people were dissatisfied with the candidates. LD ran for the U.S. House of Representatives in 1978 against Jerry Huckabee and received national media attention when he threw his hat in the ring for the Louisiana gubernatorial race the following year. By then, people in Louisiana had a nickname for Knox. They called him simply, none of the above. LD petitioned to have his nickname printed on the ballot, thinking he may have found a back door to his signature issue. His petition was denied first by the Secretary of State and then by the Louisiana Supreme Court. Feeling he was on the right path, though, Knox legally changed his name to none of the above, but it was too late to have it changed on the ballot. Just so you don't think he was a one-issue candidate, though, he ran on a platform of election reform and eliminating corruption in politics. He called for a limit to campaign expenditure and the elimination of televised campaign ads. 
He also wanted to pass the Equal Rights Amendment and eliminate nuclear energy. L.D. Knox came in sixth out of nine candidates in the primary, winning just over 6,000 votes. Turning his sights back to the U.S. House of Representatives, L.D., none of the above Knox, challenged Jerry Huckabee again in 1980, 82, 90, and 92. In 1991, he stated, quote, The people of this country have never had a free election. We don't have the right to reject candidates. We have to take the lesser of the evils, end quote. In 1995, at 66 years old, Knox entered his final election, running for sheriff at home in Franklin Parish. He came in fourth of four candidates. It's hard not to admire the grit and determination of this perennial candidate who continued to fight the good fight throughout his long life in the Pelican State. Luther Divine, none of the above, Knox, died May 27, 2009, of complications due to Alzheimer's in Winsboro, Louisiana. Among his pallbearers were a local judge, a retired state representative, and the mayor of Winsboro. Also listed in his obituary as an honorary pallbearer was former U.S. Representative and Louisiana Governor Edwin Edwards, who was, at that time, serving a 10-year sentence for racketeering. While many people talk about L.D. Knox's candidacies with a bit of a snicker, I think he'd be okay with that. But those who knew him remember him as outspoken and passionate about election reform, his home state, and America as a whole. Next time you're in the voting booth, shaking your head or saying, eeny, meeny, miny, mo." I hope you'll remember Luther Divine Knox of Jigger, Louisiana, and you'll remember you're not alone. I know that nothing can replace The way you made me feel All the warmth of your embrace I'll move on Cause nothing can bring you back to me There was definitely a carnival atmosphere in Dallas on October 5th, 1985. And why wouldn't there be? It was the first Saturday of the Texas State Fair, and farmers and craftsmen from across the Lone Star State had gathered to show off their hard work from the year gone by. There were prized pigs and chickens, quilts and dollhouses on display. Children wandered the midway with powdered sugar on their faces, eyes wide at the bright lights of the Ferris wheel and the funhouse. In the midst of the state fairgrounds sits the Cotton Bowl, and it is really there, at this storied football stadium, that our story begins. But it's not really the beginning of the story, nor is it the end, but rather as good a place as any for us to start. 36,652 spectators were in the Cotton Bowl that night, a huge crowd for the level of football game being played, and to be honest, it wasn't much of a game. With 10 minutes left in the fourth quarter, Prairie View quarterback Ernest Brow connected with tight end Charles Porter in the end zone, but it was too little too late for the team. It would be Prairie View's only score and it came after most of Grambling's starters had been pulled. As the seconds ticked down, and with Grambling leading 27-7, not one of those 36,652 people started making their way towards the exit. They were going to wait for the clock to run out, and their eyes were not on the players that evening. All eyes in the Cotton Bowl were focused on Grambling's head coach, the only coach, in fact, the school had ever had. You see, when the clock ticked down to zero on that cool Saturday night in Dallas, and Grambling emerged victorious, 66-year-old Eddie Robinson became the winningest coach 
in college football history. Dallas and the nation cheered for Coach Rob that night as tears of joy and gratitude streamed down his face. While everyone knew that this 324th win had pushed Robinson past the legendary Bear Bryant in career wins, few people knew how long and hard the road to Dallas had been. Eddie Gay Robinson was born in Jackson, Louisiana, to a sharecropper father and a domestic worker mother on February 13, 1919. His family would move to Baton Rouge, where he attended McKinley High School, which you may remember from our last episode would be the school where Reverend T.J. Jemison would organize the Baton Rouge bus boycotts. But that was still far in the future when Eddie graduated from McKinley in 1937. He went to Leland College in Baker, Louisiana, where he majored in English and played quarterback on the school football team. To make ends meet, he also worked as the campus barber and operated a coal truck for 20 cents an hour. Eddie graduated from Leland in 1941, married his college sweetheart, Doris, and moved back to Baton Rouge, where he took a job at a feed mill and worked on an ice truck at night. Life was a struggle, but they managed to get by. One day, later that year, Doris got word from a relative that the Louisiana Negro Normal and Industrial Institute was looking for a football coach. Eddie applied, and at just 22 years old, got the job. The president of the university, Ralph Jones, was looking to build a football program, and he entrusted Eddie to make that happen. His starting salary was $63.75 a month. In the early days, Eddie was the entire coaching staff for the team. In addition to his coaching duties, Eddie was expected to mow and line the fields, sew tears in his players' uniforms, and make sandwiches for his team to eat during away games where the towns they were playing in didn't have restaurants that served black people. After the games, he had to write articles for the local papers so that his team could gain some recognition. In addition, Eddie coached boys and girls basketball, directed the band, and managed the cheerleading squad. He was a busy man. That first season, the football team went an appalling 3-5-1. During the offseason, Eddie made some serious changes to the team cutting what he saw as bad elements and recruiting in area high schools. In 1942, his second season at the school, his team went 9-0, and his opponents didn't score a single point all season. For the next two years, with World War II intensifying, the school didn't field a football team, so he had to start all over again when the war ended in 1945. That year, he recruited an 18-year-old local boy who grew up right up the street from the school, named Paul Lawrence Younger. Soon after joining the team, Younger earned the nickname Tank as he became known for running over the opposing team. Over the next four years, through Eddie's leadership on the sidelines and Tanks on the field, the team would go 35 and 11. The school expanded during those years, and the Louisiana Negro Normal and Industrial Institute changed its name to Grambling. When Tank was later signed by the Los Angeles Rams, he became the first NFL player to come from a predominantly black college. He would go to the Pro Bowl four times in his 10 years in the league and would be named to the College Football Hall of Fame. Tank Younger was Eddie Robinson's first great success story, but would not be his last. During his 54 seasons as Grambling's head coach, Robinson sent 205 players to the NFL, including four Hall of Famers. Among those players was Monroe, Louisiana native James Harris, the first black quarterback to start a season in that position. He did so for the Buffalo Bills in 1969. Perhaps the most famous Grambling football alumnus, though, was Zachary, Louisiana native Doug Williams, who was the first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl. He was also Super Bowl XXII's most valuable player. He accomplished both leading my hometown 
Washington Redskins. Eddie Robinson had 45 winning seasons at Grambling, won 17 Southwest Athletic Conference championships, and nine black college football national championships. He did this all while maintaining an 85% graduation rate among his players. He was much loved and respected by the 4,500 players he coached in his long career, and they knew him simply as Coach Rob. Over the years, Robinson became close friends with Alabama's head coach, Bear Bryant, and in 1982, it was the Bear himself who presented Robinson with the Distinguished American Award. When Bryant passed away the following year, Robinson couldn't get a flight to Tuscaloosa, so he drove through the night to attend his old friend's funeral. Two years after that, he no doubt had his old friend in mind when he led his Grambling State Tigers onto the field that Saturday in 1985 in the midst of the State Fair in Dallas. It was the Bears' record he surpassed that day to become the winningest coach in college football history. As he approached the record, Robinson was as humble as always. I don't think about the record, he said. What counts to me is this game and the game next week, and the game after that. I'm just a football coach. I just try to work hard to win ball games and teach these young men a thing or two. When asked about breaking the record by often playing what were deemed substandard teams, Coach Rob said, quote, I grew up in the South. I was told where to attend elementary school, where to attend junior high school, where to attend high school, when I became the coach, I was told who I could recruit, who I could play, where I could play, and when I could play. I did what I could within the system." End quote. After breaking the record, Eddie Robinson went on to coach for 12 more years at Grambling. In 1997, after three consecutive losing seasons, the 78-year-old coach was pressured to retire. After 54 seasons, the only coach the school had ever had stepped aside with a final record of 408 wins, 165 losses, and 15 ties. He was replaced at Grambling by one of the stars he had coached, Super Bowl XXII MVP Doug Williams. Soon after retiring, Eddie Robinson developed Alzheimer's, and after a 10-year fight, died April 3rd, 2007, in Ruston, Louisiana. Upon his death, this sharecropper's son from rural Louisiana would lie in state in the rotunda of the state capitol. While his record would be surpassed four years after his death by Joe Paterno, coaching my alma mater of Penn State to his 409th career win in 2011, College football will never forget the contributions of the great Eddie Robinson. Joe Paterno himself once said, quote, Nobody has ever done or will ever do what Eddie Robinson has done for the game. End quote. Eddie Robinson was a great coach and an amazing role model and mentor to so many. He often bragged that he had only ever had one job and one wife. When asked about his legacy, he proudly said, quote, All I want is for my story to be an American story. Not black and not white, just American. I want it to belong to everybody. It certainly does, Coach Rob. It certainly does. Everybody knew he was fooling around Yeah, Virginia and Johnny were the talk of town She followed them down to the river that night With a pain and a heart and a rage in her eyes There were bodies on the ground I could hear her lonesome cry I saw the shotgun glowing in the full moonlight When Virginia closed her eyes Can you hear Virginia cry? 
That's it for the show this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, please take a minute to rate and review the show. And don't forget to tell your friends. If you'd like to find out more about me, my long, slow journey around the country, to see pictures, or just to get in touch, please check out my website, www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles, the number two, gobeforeisleep.com. Find me on Facebook, on Twitter at miles to go tweet and on Instagram at miles to go before I sleep. All using the number two for me and you. How awesome was the music this week? Many thanks to my friend, Louisiana-based singer-songwriter Joe Sims for being my musical guest. To find out more about Joe, to hear more of his music, or to get in touch with him, head on over to his website, joesimsmusic.com. That's www.joesimsmusic.com. You can find all of his music on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks, as always, go to Kevin McLeod at incomptech.com for providing background music for the show and to the great folks at freesfx.com. Our theme music comes from the legendary Memphis Slim. There's only two episodes left in this season, and I hope to get them to you sooner rather than later. Both will be coming to you straight from the heart of Dixie, stories from Sweet Home, Alabama. Until next time, then, I am your host, Mike Harding, and this is American Anthology. Keep your eyes on the road, your hands on the wheel, and your headlights pointed towards your next adventure. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every.